The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So this is the second week that we've been looking at this seeming paradox of the personal and the universal. And um, this comes up quite a bit in all different spiritual conversations, spiritual teachings. Sometimes it seems like the particular teaching or whatever we're hearing about refers to what we would call the personal, like how to be skillful in the world, world, learning how to be more competent, a nicer person, learning how to negotiate, you know, just the ordinary ups and downs in existence. And that's just, you know, it would be part of, of course, any real spiritual path would obviously need to address this personal side of life, how to be a good human being, how to be a good partner, how to be a good citizen or good community member, how to take care of our body, respect our body. And then another thing that we, of course, keep coming across in spiritual conversations and readings and talks is what we would call the universal. So not just about you know, how to be a better person, but kind of addressing existential questions. You know, what is this experience that we're having? Who are we in this experience? Why do I suffer? What is this? You know, what is birth? What is death? And in Buddhist terms, you know, opening to the universal, insight into the universal, this other side of spiritual life, not just about being a good person, but opening to a sort of a deeper experience or a deeper understanding. It's really about the wisdom of letting go, I guess we could say. You know, there are many ways to have insight into the universal, but the result of any insight into the universal is the mind or the heart understands better about the basic wisdom of letting go. Not letting go, I don't care anymore, but letting go meaning I'm not going to justify stress or tension. That's what we let go of, that unnecessary tension, that unnecessary clinging. There's some deepening wisdom, if we live a a real path, a real authentic life, we're going to learn, I mean, it's the hard way or the easy way, we're going to learn that grasping, clinging, tensing, struggling with the ups and downs in life doesn't make sense. And that's what we'd call opening to the universal. The personal is learning to sort of apply the mind and body to the ordinary circumstances and get wholesome outcomes. And the universal is learning to let go when no matter what we do, we don't get the outcome we want. But we still show up, we still do our best, but we let go. You see what a beautiful synergy there is between the universal and the personal. It's really meant not as two different things, but to be work together. And they 
they really inform one another. Last, uh, well, I wasn't here last Wednesday. Mira Young gave the talk. I was on retreat. But two weeks ago, I mentioned this. And I think it's really important how they work together, the universal and the personal. So again, the personal is about developing skill to be a more functional, wholesome person, to act in a more wholesome way in our ordinary situations. And then the universal is learning that it's possible to be free, to be free of tension, or to be free of holding, or to be free of grasping, no matter where we are in our personal life. Like, we're really successful and functional, or we're really not successful. But in either example, we don't need to be tight. We don't need to be clinging or tied up into knots just because things aren't working well or just because things are working well. So, for example, we could ask the question, how does the universal or how do we understand the universal in light of the personal? Like, how does the personal getting, becoming, understanding skillfulness, how does that inform the universal? Well, it really helps us hold or use the insight. Like, as we understand the impersonal, changing nature of experience, this is, now we're talking about the universal, that there, we have this life, each of us have this life, right? We have experiences, we have thoughts about things, we have sensations. From a personal level, it feels like all of that has a center. But from, an, from a universal sense, when we look more carefully, we understand that the personal doesn't have a center. So the way that they work together is the universal teaches the personal that you have every right to act, to be engaged in the world. But you have no rights to things turning out any particular way. Like we can show up, we can do our best, we can have the intention to be skillful, but we don't hold, nobody holds all the cards. We're in this interdependent web of causes and conditions. And so the universal teaches the personal, go ahead, be connected, be engaged. That's the way, but let go. And the personal teaches the universal that the universal truths isn't something to grasp onto, like, okay, I believe in emptiness. Common ground is the church of emptiness. There's no center. There's no person here after all. It's all empty. It's all just stuff happening, coming and going. No particular center to it. And then that's what we believe in. You know, we write it, put it on the altar, and light a candle. And, and so... Uh, that's what the tendency is with the universal. As we have insight into the universal, we think it's special because it's, it is. It's profound. It illuminates so much. And we can grasp it. So the way the personal teaches, what the personal teaches the universal is, don't take these insights as something like as some absolute truth, but understand how they're skillful. See, so it's grounding these deep insights that we have into skill. Like, is it skillful to see things in an impersonal way? Is it skillful, skillful for us 
how is it skillful for us to remember that everything comes and goes, that nothing can be counted on? So these are what we'd call universal insights, that everything's impersonal, that we're not in control, that everything's changing. But we can use them not as some kind of belief system, like this is what I believe in, this is the truth, you guys should believe this too. But we can see how it's a functional belief system. Like if I view the world through the lens of impermanence, it really helps. If I view the world through the lens of everything being impersonal, it really helps me be a functional human being, a skillful human being. So it's not about, the universal isn't about deriving, figuring out the absolute truth. It's about understanding that different perspectives, different ways of holding or understanding are either skillful or unskillful. And oh, the more, the more our view of things or our understanding is in alignment with the universal, the more functional our life is. The more functionally we're partners, you know. It actually helps to be a partner from a universal view, or a parent, or an employee, or a citizen. So it's grounding the universal in these very personal things that we have to do, like be a human being with responsibilities, and to feed ourselves, and to share with one another, and to get along. So tonight I want to talk a little bit about the universal, a little bit more about the universal. And in terms of you know, thinking about it as a practice, like what, do we, what can we do to open, to have insight to the universal? Keeping in mind that we want to use it in terms of what, like a, a skillful way, like it's going to be grounded in the personal. But first we need to find a way to have insight. And you know, basically the way it works for insight into the universal is we have to appreciate, well, where is the universal? Well, it's here, you know, of course. So it's not like we need to go to some special cave or special retreat center or even do a special practice to open the, to the universal. The way into the universal or what we might call like uh, deeper truths deeper understanding is we have to look at what we might call the veneer of our life you know when we look at our life we immediately see our idea or our story about our life situation okay I'm Mark and I got a lot I need to do and I've got this coming up and I've got this painful memory from what I did yesterday that I wish I didn't do and and these ideas we have about our lives it's like our veneer and it always gets, you know, it's a very thin thing, but it gets our attention. It absorbs the mind, and we, the attention gets absorbed or gets identified with this veneer in a reactive way, and we never go beyond it. And I might have mentioned this two weeks ago in the first talk on this subject, that it's a little bit like looking at the screen door. You know, you're looking at your backyard, but... The mind is completely fixated, interested in just the screen. You know, and if you really look at the screen, fixated, you won't even know that there's a backyard out there. You'll be seeing all the little intricacies of the screen. And then with practice, we can train the mind not to be confused by the screen and to actually see quite well the backyard. 
And it's a little bit like opening to the universal. We just start by, you know, sitting down or whatever, however we're going to practice. And immediately the personal is going to come up. You know, oh, my knee feels like this. Oh, yeah, I did that today. Oh, I need to do this tomorrow. Oh, that's an interesting color on the wall. You know, so this is all the level of the personal, like sort of working on our position in our life situation, our ideas about how we are in our life situation, how we'd like it to be, what's in the way, solving problems on the level of our personal life situation. And this is that veneer. So opening to the universal is learning not to be confused by this. So now now we understand a lot of our techniques. Like one of the things we do a lot when we're meditating, some of us do, you know, if something personal arises, we practice seeing it as just that. You know, so there we are, we're sitting, <laughs> and our mind is remembering something and judging somebody. And then we just see it with a moment of mindfulness and we realize, oh, it's just judging. Oh yeah, that's just the judging mind. It's just judging. And you see it's like neutralizing the personal. We're not trying to get rid of the judging mind, but we're neutralizing it. We're realizing, oh, it's just a veneer. I don't need to be for or against the judging. I don't need to be for or against the pain in the knee. I don't need to be for or against the sound of somebody moving near me. So we're letting the present moment experience and the, the content that usually causes the mind to react, to get identified, and triggers some sort of fixing or doing. But now we're seeing all of that level in a very impersonal way, and the moment begins to open up in the sense that we're no longer fixing things in terms of the personal. When we cease doing that, the universal begins to present itself. So again, we don't need to go anywhere to open to the universal, you know, deeper truths about the way it is. It's already here. We're, in a sense, swimming in it. We've always been swimming in it. It's never been anywhere else but here. Any particular idea you have about a mystical experience or a deep meditative insight or the great truths, what was that in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe? You know, that answer to the meaning of life was 42 or 44 or something like that. You know, whatever we think that is, that deep truth, it's got to be here. But the problem isn't that it isn't here. The problem is that the mind, in a sense, is fixated or obsessed or reactive, caught in a reactive pattern with the surface of things. So before we can actually connect with the pain, as soon as we even recognize that there's pain in the knee, we're already, in a sense, in a reactive pattern about our thoughts about having pain in the knee. Any particular experience is a doorway to the universal. It's just a matter of the mind that knows, knowing that experience without adding anything to it. So the Buddha gives us some suggestions, you know, like an opening to the universal. For example, as we're feeling the breath, as we're opening to pain, as we're noticing an agitating thought in the mind. So any of those three particular experiences, we can 
that one way to help neutralize it, not to react, is to start noticing some of the universal qualities of that particular experience instead of the personal qualities. So for example, pain, if I turn it into personal, it's like, well, this is my knee, and it hurts, and I'm worried about what that means for me. But instead, I could look at the universal quality, like change is a universal quality. Like that pain, from a personal level, it might appear to be like solid, like, yeah, it's just painful. But when we relax and have a little bit more interest, we'll see that the pain is actually alive. It's not a thing, but it's a changing, undulating, moving process of sensation. It's flowing like a river. And the more we open to that movement, the more the pain is defined by the movement more than the unpleasantness of it. See, when we fix on it, then we're, the mind is fixing on the idea this is unpleasant. And it's establishing that concept. That's a concept, this is unpleasant. See, we're already removed from the sensation. But as we start to feel the pain in what we could call the universal level, then whatever you want to say it is, it's characterized by movement, by change. That dominates one's perception from a universal point of view. And that's amazing. I mean, it's not what we normally think pain is. Same with thought. So we can do this. You know, Whether you're just casually being mindful during your day or formally in your meditation, you can invite in the perception of change or impermanence. Part of what impermanence teaches us is that whatever it is, it keeps changing. Another, another sort of invitation into the impersonal or into the universal is to see that it's impersonal. So again, using the example of the knee, or you could use the example of a more neutral sensation like breath going in and out of the nostrils or a thought being known. But we can also start to see that these phenomena don't have a center. So we're actually training, like a, uh, practicing looking or observing with this, with this particular lens of either impermanence or the impersonal nature. So you're looking at the pain now. And of course, the deep habit coming out of the personal point of view is, well, this is my knee and it hurts and I really don't want it to hurt. And what should I do? Should I move my leg? Will that bother people around me? Should I sit still and just resist it? And we can get into, you know, we can spend the whole sit basically analyzing the problem that I have pain in my knee. But if we instead uh, just see that surface and neutralize it by understanding it's just thinking, it's just reacting, it's just aversion, not for or against it. We can, in a sense, just go right through it and, and go right into the sensation. We see the changing nature, nature of the sensation. But we can also focus on the impersonal nature. Like, there is sensation, it's moving, and nobody's in control of that pain in the knee. It isn't, I'm not doing it. There's nobody doing that pain. It's just pain happening. Now, I know it sounds a little funny to say that, but this is, some, this is a particular insight, meaning it is a particular 
understanding, a way of seeing that's available, not just to pain in the knee, to thought, to sensation, ordinary sensation like at the breath, seeing. It's like you can look around this room right now, and you know it's, it seems very much like, hey, I'm here with the rest of you guys, and we're at common ground, and I recognize some of you, and some of you I don't recognize. But we can also uh, observe this this visual experience. You know, when we're not confused by the labels we're putting down, by the concepts we have, we can see just the dance of the visual experience. You know, the play of light and form. It's not so easy with seeing, especially seeing human faces, because we conceptualize very quickly with certain objects. But it's really possible. You know, you look at the floor, and initially, you know, you see, you know, the thought catches the mind. Is this red oak, or is it regular oak, or is it maple? Or what kind of wood is it, and what sort of finish did they use? And, oh, there's a scratch. And that's what the mind generally does with the experience. But if we practice not identifying with those thoughts, those opinions, those, you know, that analysis, and just stay more direct with the visual experience, you know, we'll see that it's moving, it's alive. And that it's all of a sudden it starts to have this impersonal flavor. You know, it's the actual visual experience isn't about anybody, doesn't locate me in some story. It's not personal. It's not personal about anything. And I'm sure you've had this experience. It can be quite disconcerting if it arises in just ordinary experiences. You know, you're sitting there with somebody and you just shift into this more universal perspective. And all of a sudden, the moment, having dinner with a friend, you know, just seems very fluid, very alive, and very impersonal. And the person might wonder, you know, are you still there? You know, are you still there as a contracted human being, codependent with my contraction? And the answer is no. I'm sorry, I just slipped into freedom for a moment. <laughs> I'll be back. Okay, here I am. Back into my fear state or my grasping state again. So these are two ways that we can invite ourselves, invite the mind, I should say, into the universal, the gateway of impermanence, like going through the personal reactions, the personal opinions, concepts, not being for or against them, seeing, in a sense, right through them, into the immediacy of the present moment, seeing at the present moment whatever we're opening to, whatever phenomenon, through any of the sense gates that we're opening to, seeing the fluid changing, ephemeral nature, and seeing that it's that change, that flow is impersonal. Impersonal means that you can't um, find a center to it. And I always use this example, I'm sure many of you have heard it, but like the weather we had today, Clearly, it was something. It's still something, right? It's still weather out there. But there's no center to the weather. You know, can you find a center, like the headquarters of the weather today? Now, in terms of our personal experience, it always feels like there's a center to it, right? But that's because that's what personal uh, relating to life from a personal point of view does. It that's what basically that's the definition of the personal is 
the mind is constructing a sense of there being a center to the experience that's being known. And with the universal, we're learning to not be confused by what is just a habit. It's not some ultimate truth, that center. It's just a projection that the mind has gotten in the habit of projecting. And when we practice not being confused by that overlay, going through it into what we call the universal, into the changing nature and the impersonal nature of this flow that we call our experience, then that has that strong flavor of being impersonal. No center, many causes and conditions unfolding lawfully without a center. There's a beautiful story from the time of the Buddha about uh, a woman, Gotami, who uh, grew up in a poor family, married into a slightly wealthier family, and as I guess was the custom, maybe still to some degree in the country in India, is the custom of the woman then moving in with her in-laws, with her new husband, and of course wasn't treated very well because she came from a poor family and you know, obviously didn't like not having any respect, but eventually gave birth to a son. Finally, she had a little respect from the family. She felt good about that. One day, the little boy running around and playing fell and died. Got hit, hit the head or something and died. And of course, she was very upset. She, of course, loved her child. And not only that, as bad as that is, then on top of that, just uh, somehow losing her role in the family, losing the respect. And her in-laws and husband were going to take the child away from her, bring it to the cemetery. Of course, all of that, she lost her mind to some degree, went a little crazy, grabbed the child back, took off out of the house, and started wandering through the countryside asking people for medicine to cure the dead baby. Um, and probably just uh, imagining that somehow the baby's not dead, but you know, sick and just needs some help. And clearly out of her mind. And people, of course, would try to avoid her because you know she's a crazy lady with a dead baby and or dead child. And so eventually, though, she ran into somebody with some compassion. And he thought, or she thought, <coughs> maybe the Buddha can help. So he said to her, hey, I think there's somebody who has some medicine for your child. And told her where to go, where the Buddha was teaching out in the country. She ran, walked out there, showed up to the Buddha and said, do you have medicine for my child? And the Buddha, immediately sizing up the situation, said, yes, I do, in fact, have some medicine for your child. What I want you to do is go into the nearest village and ask for a mustard seed from a household that hasn't experienced death. And she was so, of course, hopeful now that uh, she'd be able to save her son. So she went into the first village, of course, and first house, knocked on the door, said, you know, do you have a mustard seed? I don't know if you've seen a mustard seed. It's not so big. So it's something that a household would probably be happy to share with anybody. She said, she said, do you have some mustard seed? Of course, she said, yes. It's common spice in Indian food. Has anybody ever died in this house? And of course, the person who answered the door said, oh, has anybody died? Of course, there have been many, many over the years, 
through the generations of people who have lived here. Of course, there have been many, many people. Because, of course, in those days, people didn't get sent to nursing homes or hospitals to die. They just died at home. And the woman said, well, what good is your mustard seed? You know, She was angry, of course, and took off to the next house. And as you can imagine how the story goes, same story at all the houses she went. And very quickly, something happened to her mind. And it's uh, said that she said to herself, this is the way it will be in the entire city. By means of the Blessed One's compassion for my welfare, this will be what is seen. And having gained a sense of spiritual urgency from that, she went out and covered her son in the Toronto ground, you know, in the cemetery. Went to the Buddha, and the Buddha asked, um, uh, have you obtained the mustard seed? And Gotami said, finish, sir, is the matter of the mustard seed. You have indeed restored me. Because she got, she got the fact deep that this experience of losing my son, it didn't have anything to do with me. It actually isn't personal at all. You know, we can see that about any kind of experience, good experience or bad experience. It's, of course, easy, like if we have some success, it's easy to tell ourselves a personal story. Well, this is something I did. This is something I'm good at. This is something where I've received you know, the just reward for my good efforts. But it doesn't take much wisdom to take a few steps back and to understand that whatever good thing is happening for us, that the causes and conditions that led to it are innumerable. Like I said, is it our success? Or those people who trained us, you know, my mom's genes or my dad's genes or my fifth grade teacher or my culture that I grew up or just luck or this or that. You know, how many causes and conditions are behind anything? And when we say, you know, I deserve it, where's the I that deserves it? So it's the same thing with Gotami, you know, just seeing that this experience of the sun dying is something that's universal. Things come and go. And nobody is in control of things coming and going. We know they come and go, but we don't know when they're going to come and go. We can't predict how they're going to come and go. Who's in charge? Like, who's in charge of when this life ends? Am I in charge of that? No. I'm not even in charge of whether people like me or dislike me or whether I get a cold or not a cold. And we could say, well, you know, you make choices like what you eat, Mark. But yeah, do I really? You know, like, I'm there in front of the refrigerator, and, you know, I get swept away. <laughs> and am I the one that gets swept? You know what I mean? Am I deciding to get swept away into this or that? And that's, in fact, what the Buddha says to her. When Gotami says to the Buddha, you know, finish, sir, is the matter of the mustard seed. You have indeed restored me. And then the Buddha is said to have said to her, a person with a mind that clings, deranged to sons and possessions, is swept away by death that comes like muddy, mighty flood to sleeping town. So you might know the Buddha taught in northern India, and uh, it was it's basically a big flood plain. The Ganges and a couple other major rivers come together there. And so the probably most common natural disaster would be, you know, in the middle of the night, of course they didn't have a warning system or 
at some point, the river would rise and all of a sudden the village would be gone, just sweep everybody away. You can imagine a little bit like the earthquake and the tsunami that just happened. How frightening that would be for just a wave to just sweep. All of a sudden it's there. There's, it's too late to do anything. And that's the example of how we get swept away by the personal. Something happens. Because of habit, we interpret what's happening from a personal point of view. So it feels appropriate to get tight, to react. Because our personal point of view hasn't been informed by the universal, which is we have a right to relate, to engage, to do our best, but we're not in control of outcomes. right? That's how the universal supports, informs the personal. And, you know, we get swept away. So there are different ways, you know, we get swept away. This wave comes in. I mean, one is something really pleasant or unpleasant arises, and we can get fixated. From a personal point of view, we get really attracted to the pleasant or really repulsed by the unpleasant. And then into our thoughts about the pleasantness or unpleasantness. So that's one way we can get swept away. Another way, these are the three outflows that the Buddha talked about. So even that term, outflows, you know, it's the same image. The Buddha used this image of being swept away by a flood as the most, I think it's probably the most common simile he used uh, to explain this tendency of our mind to be caught in the personal and then swept away into tension, into suffering because of that. And the other way is the, uh, getting caught into some idea of becoming. Like, I don't know what happened during your sit, but one of the things that happened in my sit is I, uh, at some point, the thought of uh, property we're going to go look at on Friday out in the country came to mind. And, uh, you know, just that becoming the one who has a nice place in the country to go to, right? So now that's an image. So all, all that happened was a memory arose, like a picture in my mind of a picture I've seen of this property. So it just arose. But then with that image, the mind constructs a mark who could be the one who owns, who has this place, you know? And then, then that becoming, it literally sweeps the mind away. It's just tumbling, like very much like we, you know, if you were caught in a tsunami. The mind is tumbling with possibilities and dangers and worries and hopes and just like that, swept along until hopefully at some point the suffering, the tension in that proliferation wakes us up. We go, oh, do I really need to be thinking about this now? Is this helping anybody? Is it good for me? No. Well, maybe I'll just come back to the experience of the body or to the next breath. And let, and let that go. So becoming, you know, whatever, becoming something in the future, that's another way we get swept away out of the universal. And then the third way is ignorance. It's a common way we get trapped, swept away. The ignorance that we don't need to worry. It's like a, some of you know the program at 9 o'clock on Minnesota Public Radio. It's called The Story. I don't know if it's on every night, but it's on a lot of nights out of uh, North Carolina Public Radio, I think. Anyway, uh, forget the person's name who, who does the interviews. But he, he interviews people who have these amazing stories. And uh, 
last night or the night before, he was interviewing somebody who was um, in Thailand kayaking six, five or six years ago when there was that big tsunami um, from the earthquake around Indonesia. I forget actually where the earthquake was, but somewhere out there. And, uh, and it affected Thailand too, parts of Thailand. Um, and he was just kayaking around. And he had come into shore, this particular place, and tied his boat um, to some tree, you know. And he was just standing 15 feet above the water and just kind of gazing out. And he noticed this really beautiful, amazing sight of this line on the horizon, from one end of the horizon to the other, of water, you know, just like a beautiful, perfect wave, about six feet tall. And he thought he was perfectly safe. I mean, this is somebody who really had a lot of skill as a kayaker. And he just thought it was a six-foot wave. And he was, you know, 15 feet up. And in a little bit, he thought, you know, no problem. And this would be, and he was just in trance. It was just a beautiful thing. And so this is just an example of ignorance, you know, like thinking we know what's happening. That's what ignorance is. So we stop, we stop being reflective, you know, and basically, our interpretation, our certainty that we know what's happening, we keep interpreting the new information in light of the arrogant assumption that this is what's going on, right? So even as it got closer and closer, even the fact that this was a perfect wave that stretched perfectly from horizon to horizon, that he had never seen anything like it before, you know, didn't didn't make him think, well, maybe just to be safe, I should go further up. And he had, uh, while he was hanging out there, he had, tie, you know, he had dragged the boat up with him, his kayak, and tied it to this tree. And, and uh, I think he was holding on, or I forget what. But anyway, of course, the wave came in. But it wasn't a wave. It was a wall of water. You know, it doesn't, doesn't stop with it. Like a wave just sort of stops, you know, it crashes and then sweeps out. But this was a wall of water that swept completely over him. And uh, somehow he survived that. And, and again, I mean, it's just like a perfect example of ignorance. So uh, luckily, the boat was tied. So he was able to get back to the boat. And he, he wasn't killed in this. And it eventually swept back out. The water swept back out. And, uh, and there were all these whirlpools going on. And he thought, well, I should probably be heading back. And as he got back in the water, which seems pretty stupid, <laughs> because he probably didn't know about tsunamis, you know, that they can come in sequences. And so he goes out, and then he started playing in these whirlpools, too, which, you know, didn't turn out to be a problem. But, you know, so he's sort of dallying around. Anyway, as <laughs> he rounded some corner back toward the bay where he was staying, he noticed the people up on the hill, you know, behind, and they were shouting, wait, wait. <laughs> so what does he do? He waved. <laughs> and, and at some point, he it finally, somebody yelled something else besides the word wave that caused him to turn around. And there was, of course, another wave coming in. So he had enough time to turn around and, you know, go right into it as best he could. And um, I forget what happened. I mean, he just got, he, he held his, he, he was able to get a big breath. And he was for a long time under, 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 under. And, you know, eventually made his way back in. He, it wasn't that big. I mean, they were in Thailand, so it was pretty far away from the, where the major damage was. There was damage, but, and, uh, you know, was saved. But just another, you know, just how 
uh, how many times in our lives our mind is basically telling us, unconsciously mostly, you know, you don't really need to pay attention now. You don't really need to uh, reflect on what, whether your assumptions are matching reality right now. You can just casually go ahead as if your assumptions are in alignment with the truth of what's going on. That's what ignorance means. And this sweeps us away, this sort of assumption that we know. Like how many times have we been in relationships thinking that the relationship is fine and then discovering it's not fine, you know, or at least not according to the other person? Or any, you know, thinking where our job is fine and then realizing, no, it's not fine. Or realizing, you know, the thinking that we're healthy and then realizing, oh my God, I'm not healthy. I thought it was healthy. So there's this assumption that whatever's going on now is going to keep happening like this. I was talking with a friend of mine earlier this afternoon about the economy and, you know, just some of the intricacies of how the Fed, you know, is pumping a lot of cash into the system and how a lot of us, you know, just have this basic assumption that, well, you know, we always seem to pull out of things. and But we don't know what's going to happen, you know. And we, what would it be to live with uncertainty as opposed to the ignorance of certainty? <laughs> so this is another way that we get swept away is the ignorance of certainty and how many different places in our life we can see this. So these are just other ways that we can open to the universal is just being away, aware of these three outflows. You know, our addiction, our fixation on what's pleasant and unpleasant and how that really sweeps us away. So can we have a more neutral attitude about pleasant and unpleasant, mental and physical events? So we're not just talking about pleasant physical and unpleasant physical, but pleasant thoughts and unpleasant thoughts. They're so enchanting. Can we be disenchanted with what's pleasant and unpleasant? Can we not be enchanted or swept away by possibilities of becoming about the future? But just have a neutral, because we don't know. So why should we be enchanted? We don't know how it's going to unfold. And not be enchanted by the ignorance of, of certainty that the way it is now is the way it's going to be in the future, because we don't know. We, what we actually do know is we know we don't know. I mean, that's what we can know. That's what opening to the universal can lead to, is a clearer sense that we, well, I really know that I don't know what's going to happen. So I'll leave it here. Well, next week I'll talk more about how we can specifically open to the personal and, again, how we can bring the universal to help us work with the personal, right, to really develop skill. Um, that's really the level of the personal. But I'll leave it here. We have about 12 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from people. Examples from your own lives that come to mind. Questions about the talk tonight. What seems relevant? Yeah, Anne. Um, I'm just curious to hear what you I think I'm going to survive. <laughs> um, and 
you hear a lot about the practice of gratitude and the practice of, um, you know, using your thoughts to actually create positive outcomes. Yeah. So that's the level of being skillful, the personal. Can you say more? Yeah. Well, next week for sure, but... <laughs> I mean, the thing about the personal is, in life generally, it's really pragmatic. So it's seeing, it's just tracking cause and effect. That's how we get competent at the personal. We pay attention. So both opening to the universal and opening to the personal both involve mindfulness. It's just about, in a sense, you could say what frequency we're looking at our life. So if we're looking at using a dense frequency, observing our life through like at the dense end of the spectrum, that's we could call that the personal. And if we're looking at our life at the present moment in a refined, subtle frequency, we can call that the universal. So if we want to understand like how to work with thought and how to work with emotion and wholesome emotions like gratitude and abandoning unwholesome emotions and how to be you know have an intimate relationship that's actually wholesome. You know, it's about paying attention. And what we're paying attention to is, so we try something. And then we keep paying it, we're tracking. And the thing about paying attention, it isn't like paying attention, but it's, it's a continuity of awareness. So when we do something, when we act on an intention and we're observing, we'll see the consequences that flow out of that action, that thought, that word, that deed. And that's how we become more skillful in life. We are tracking cause and effect. So we're quiet and we see, well, what are the results in this kind of situation of being, keeping our mouth shut? Or sometimes we say something and then we track and we notice what happens, what flows out of having spoken up in that way in that kind of a situation. And we see, was, did it have skillful results or unskillful? Did this mind and other minds get more tight or not so tight? You know, so we're just tracking and it's really pragmatic in that way. And, you know, and there are some governing principles that we start to see. But it's, it's better not to just take them out of a book and assume they're right, like being kind is better than being mean. Better to know directly the positive results that flow from being kind and gentle and patient and to see directly from our mistakes when we're aversive and irritated and impatient and to see what flows out of those mind states, like how it really doesn't work. We don't really get happiness when we're impatient. We think that somehow being impatient is going to get us what we want. But if we really look, track it, we see clearly, my God, impatience. You'd have to be insane to be intentionally impatient. So a rational, sane human being would do whatever they could skillfully do to abandon impatience because it's painful to be impatient. And it leads to painful consequences. People don't like us, for example. We don't even like ourselves when we're impatient. You know, it's no, we're no fun to be around. Yeah, so next week, and hopefully people will bring in their own reflections next week, too. Yeah. Say your name. Hi, Sam. I'm finding like, a more mindful I get, like, the more, the scarier that impatience comes, keeps coming back. Like, now I'm way more impatient at those moments. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But, uh, it's more yeah, but that, that fear might be somewhat wholesome. 
And also, it may not be that you're more impatient, but it may be that you're just more sensitive, which, yeah, and that is really good. But it is intense. I totally agree with you. It is intense to become more aware. And a lot of times in the practice, the sensitivity increases faster than the wisdom. <laughs> and so it's, it gets really intense to be so aware of how unskillful we are and also how unskillful everybody else is. And it can, a kind of existential aversion can come up like, I want out. But there is no out. There's only going forward in the practice. And there's no backing up, really. Like uh, one teacher said, it's like a porcupine being stuck in a drain pipe. It's like you can't go backwards. You can only keep going forward. Once you develop some sensitivity, you realize actually the sensitivity is helpful, but it's not easy to handle. And But it really it <clears throat> provokes insight and deepening wisdom the more sensitive we are, because it's intolerable to be sensitive without wisdom that, that allows the heart to forgive, to let go, to accept, to not take it personally. Yeah, Jana, and then back in the room. So one of the things I take refuge in when the sensitivity sort of seems unbearable is the universal. And yeah. so when you were saying, like, hey, we have the universal, we light a candle to it, et cetera, et cetera, I was like, hey, wait a minute, I kind of do that. <laughs> and, and so, I mean, I do sort of cling to this idea that ultimately things are okay, even if they seem not okay. Yeah. And so when does that become unskillful, or how is that unskillful? Well, I know that experience. I mean, I remember times after really deep insights, and then slowly it, it gets morphed to the idea of having had a deep insight, and then a kind of clinging and grasping onto it. And I think the, the answer to your question is sometimes the altar, you know, putting emptiness on an altar or some idea that it's all stuff happening and that's okay as a concept, it can be a doorway that we can actually walk through. So it's nice to have sort of a symbol or an idea that acts sort of as a, as a gateway to remind us of what is actually true. But we have to not just see the door, we have to keep walking through the door into the actual experience of the universal. We have to keep making it real. And this is chronic in, I think, all spiritual circles where people actually have authentic insights, but they don't keep refreshing the insight. They, they basically build a temple, a monument to the insight in their life. And then they, they want to, they feel they have to defend it. But the point of an insight is to keep having it over and over. When we open to the universal, this isn't something we do once. We want to learn how to do it as, in as many moments as possible. But it's okay to symbolize it in however way we might do that, as long as we use the symbol to walk through the door instead of just sort of hey, my symbol's bigger than your symbol, or something like that. Yeah, maybe time for one or two more comments. Say your name. Kate. Hi, Kate. And, um, one thing that's been on my mind a lot is how in, in, um, in our work world, there are, everything is tied to outcomes. Um, you know, whether it's the sales cycle and how much revenue you need to bring in, or um, I need to get the students to perform this way on this test, um, and they are stressed out because they need to to that outcome. Um, and so I find 
when I'm sitting, it's very, it's very helpful to um, come back to that inner focus, to that personal, um, and, and and my awareness that I can't control that outcome because then I can be peaceful, um, even within those very severe um, external messages. And I, but but where I get tripped up is I feel like I'm I think there's a lot of truth to that. But the, one one of the tr- truths, though, is that <clears throat> the outcomes do get addressed, but not because we're dependent on them or we're afraid of them not happening, but because we're able to be clear and relaxed in the present, sort of addressing what needs to be done right now. And... Uh, so it's like learning a kind of wisdom that is not getting confused by other people's fear or other people's fixation on outcomes, but understanding, like with compassion, understanding why people get caught up in that, you know, because they're just lost in the personal. And so in the, from the personal level, outcomes that becoming, that's everything. You know, that's, they put all their eggs in that basket. And uh, success, personal success, personal relevance is a matter of that success. So we can just do what's next, stay really focused on what's next, knowing that we don't know what's going to flow out of our life or this job or whatever. But we'll just do our best. And that will, you know, it will be what it will be. And, you know, life by definition is a losing proposition, you know. Nothing. We don't get to take anything with us, and um, yeah. So we just have to somehow, each of us in our own way, we have to integrate that truth, and we have to find reasons to be fully engaged with that truth. You know, and so our actions really come out of compassion, not about you know what we're going to get or the reward, because whatever the reward, it will be temporary. On some level, at least. Thanks, Kate. I think we have to leave it here. Let's just take a few seconds to let go of the words, and we can take a few breaths together.